Well, last class of September. Yay! Next time we meet, it will be October. So. Why? It should be. Shouldn't October be the 8th and November the 9th and December be the 10th? Yeah. It was. It, they were at one point, and then when months were moved around, I think especially when July and August were put in, July after Julius Caesar and then August after Augustus Caesar, it kind of shoved everything else okay. out of order. But originally that would have been the, the way it worked out. Because, yeah, why, why would October, why is October the 10th month? Doesn't make any sense. It also would have had to do with the year would have normally started. The year never started, didn't start January 1st a long time ago. The year started like the first day of spring. Should be in March. Ah, two months later, you're about two months off. So now all of a sudden October would be the 10th month and November the 9th. October would be the 8th, November the 9th, and December the 10th. So, yeah, good question though. <laughs> it's one of those that why? Why does it doesn't make sense? Why is October the... Eighth, why, is, why is October not the eighth month? All right, assignments coming up. Quiz three. I did go in and extend it, so if anybody looked at it earlier and it said it was due tomorrow, it is extended, so it will be available through the third, 6 a.m. on the third. So you do have some more time to complete that. We will finish a lot of chapter nine. We'll get through much of chapter nine today and probably finish that up on Wednesday. Exam two, I did put off till Monday, as I told you last time. That'll be next Monday. Again, we'll be through all that material and starting on chapter 10 before then, but I think the exams work much better if I give them on a Monday or Wednesday than doing them on Friday, just with the, with the lab period. So I think it works out a little bit better. Um, homework 4 I gave you last time. That is due on the 11th of October. And then the second iTunes quiz will be up a week from today. And we'll go through this Friday's picture. So after this Friday, then it will go on to the third quiz there. So it'll cover everything from the end of the last quiz up through this Friday, any of those images. Quiz 4 is October 16th, or scheduled for October 16th right now. That is an in-class quiz. That one is actually done in class. So not one I've got a good way to do right now online. So. You have to work on that, but right now there's not a good way for me to do that, so I actually give you that one in class, which is real good because I usually time it. I may adjust that a day either way, depending on when I actually get to the exact material I want to cover it. So you'll actually have covered exactly what I want you to do in class before you take the quiz. So makes it hopefully a relatively easy one. Uh, and then the second article review is due the 18th of October. So that's coming up as well. Uh, you've got the first ones back. All the grades are up there. I think everybody here who at least who turned them in got, got your reviews back. So you can take a look at that with any, um, any comments I gave you and try to make some adjustments if you need to for the, next, for the next review. You are allowed to use those articles, the list of them. You can use three of those if you choose to use three of those for the, re for the three reviews. Three different ones, please. Don't review the same one again. But if you want to pick out another one of those and do it, you're not required to. I'm not going to give you another set of articles. I'm not going to give you 15 more articles to look at. You can pick a second one from those if you want to. You're also welcome to find your own. Questions? Alrighty. Picture of the day or video clip of the day is actually the Perseid meteor shower from 2013. Perseid meteors are a real nice meteor shower uh, that occurs in August of each year. And we mentioned uh, very briefly when in our run through the solar system that the meteor showers are caused when the Earth passes through the debris left behind by a comet. 
So when we see meteor showers, we're seeing little tiny bits of a comet burning up in the Earth's atmosphere. And they occur um, annually as the Earth happens to pass through the same point in space. We will go through that same debris, same, same field of debris left behind by the comet. Now the Perseids are a nice one. There's a couple others. There's another nice one in December and a couple other nice ones scattered throughout the year. Perseids are unusually nice because they occur in August. So if you want to go sit out for a while, for an hour or two hours and watch meteor showers, would you rather do it in a night in August or in December or January? Yeah. yeah, probably in August you want to sit out there watching them. So it's one of the real nice ones to be able to see. So let me go ahead and play this. That's actually not what the, what the thing is about. It's not looking, although you'll get to see the meteor showers. You'll also see some, you'll see some short streaks, which are the meteor showers in this. It's a time-lapse uh, video. So it runs about 30 seconds, but it actually covers from 9.30 p.m. until 3 a.m. the next morning. So each one, each image, so each clip is about a 20, 20, 20, 20, 30 second exposure of the sky. So all of those put together then give you this little video. But what they're ask, actually looking at is towards the end of this, about 25 seconds in, so about the last uh, seven or eight seconds, this greenish glow appears in the sky. And the question is, is what is it? There are some explanations, possible explanations that have been given in terms of uh, sky glows and aurora or maybe some kind of other lighting, but people don't know for sure. Aliens? Yeah, who, know, who knows? What do, you, what do you want to suggest for it? And one of the things they're putting it up there for is that they're putting up for a discussion as, you know, put all these heads together, let everybody look at it, and maybe somebody who works in some other field may say, oh, well, I know exactly what that is. I've seen it happen in some other situation. Maybe this is it in the sky. Whereas somebody who's used to looking at the sky might not, you know, so focused on certain things. So that's the whole idea behind what they're putting this video up for. So let me go ahead and let this play here. So we start out in the day, light time, and then you'll see a few, you'll see the meteor streaks shooting through the Milky Way there and you can see scattered meteor streaks. The shorter ones are the meteors. You see a couple real long ones where it stretches all where it goes all the way across the sky and those would actually be satellites that you can you can see as well. And then towards the end here you'll start to see there it goes. It looks a little bit like the aurora but it comes up all of a sudden just for a very just for that short time. So it's unusual in terms of the way the aurora normally appear. So what is it? I can't tell you for sure. I mean, the aurora, an aurora or some kind of you know, uh, set of charged particles striking the Earth's atmosphere is one thing that would explain it. But there are certainly other things that could explain that as well. And that's the whole idea behind this is, again, to try to look and see, you know, does somebody else have a, have a good idea or something else that could explain what, why, that, why that did occur. Usually they're over a longer period of time. I mean, like a solar storm lasts a while. It doesn't just last for, you know, even though that's, again, that looks instantaneous to us, of course. Don't forget that was taken over, what did I say, 9.30 to 3, so about six, almost six hours worth of time. So that little bit was still, you know, an hour's worth, but still, for the aurora lasts much longer, typically. So that's why it was really sort of unusual. It didn't quite look exactly like the aurora, though it had some, some, some similarities to them. Yes, ma'am? Can you watch it again? Can you watch I it again? distracted and watch the waves. Oh. <laughs> you got distracted? Yep. Okay. We can play it again. There's the, there's the Milky Way. You see moving out of sight there. And there's a couple streaks coming through. One there. 
Another, you're not seeing near as many as you will see if you actually play it on your own screen. And then here, coming up towards the end, we'll start to see that greenish glow just appearing there. And kind of going from the bottom and just fading up towards the top of the screen. So, interesting. It's amazing how much we still don't know. We talk about how much we don't know in the universe, how much we don't know this close to home. Even our own atmosphere we don't completely understand. Our own Earth we don't completely understand yet. Changing the magnetic field probably shouldn't. You need some. You need some kind of particles coming in. But so I don't know whether it has something to do with some kind of particles coming in. I mean, changing the magnetic field would change where the aurora occurs, but wouldn't create it itself. Question? Yeah. Do you believe in aliens? Do I believe in aliens? Do I believe in life, other life out in the universe? Yes. Do I think that there are aliens that have visited us? Probably not. So. Is that a kind of <laughs> wishy-washy answer? But no, no I mean, yeah, yes and no. So if you, you know, yeah, I think there is probably life somewhere else out there, whether it's intelligent like ours or, you know, well beyond, you know, microbial, there's, there's probably something else. You know, the universe is just that big. Whether there are other intelligent civilizations, that's probably a good possibility too. I mean, the universe is, when you think about how big, big the universe is, not just, you know, our solar system and our galaxy and, all these galaxies, you know, somewhere else out there. But do I think we've been visited all these times that people have claimed? And that, no, I, that, I, that I don't. So, okay. All right, other questions? No? All righty. Well, let's go back to the sun. So we were right about here. We had just gone through a little bit on the interior of the sun. Let's look at the outer layers a little bit. And we looked at this in lab a couple of weeks ago. We looked at some spectra. We looked at emission spectra there. This is the opposite. This is absorption spectra. And if you recall, an absorption spectrum is formed when you have a continuous source. That's the hot interior of the sun, the hot inner layers that are emitting a very, uh, are very high temperatures and emitting a continuous spectrum. When that passes through a less dense gas, the outer atmosphere of the sun, then we get absorption lines. So instead of seeing emission lines from the sun, we actually see absorption lines. There's a very hot source underneath emitting a continuous spectrum from red through violet. But everything we see in the atmosphere is absorbing out some of that light. And that tells us what the sun is made up of. Now, that technically only tells us what the outer layers of the sun are made up of. It doesn't tell us what the core is made up of. You know, core could be something completely different. We don't get any kind of spectral lines from the core. We can't see that. That's buried deep within the sun. But pretty good guess that the outer layers are probably comparable to what is there further inside. There's no reason that there should be a big difference and that the outer layers of the sun should be, say, all hydrogen, which is what we know them to be, and the inner layers are all Mercury, gold, you know, copper. There's no reason that that would occur. Why all, those, all that element would be there, the sun would probably have gotten pretty well mixed up. But what we see here is not just hydrogen. There are some hydrogen lines. There's one there, hydrogen, 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 a set of hydrogen lines. We looked at those. So we know there is some hydrogen in the sun. 
not the brightest of the lines, not the strongest, even though hydrogen is by far the most uh, common element in the sun. And that's because the sun's too cold. You need a pretty high temperature to excite the hydrogen, hydrogen atom. About 10,000 degrees to really excite it very well and cause it to emit or absorb uh, light. The sun's only about 6,000 degrees, so while it sounds hot to us, it's not hot enough for the hydrogen, so you don't really see the hydrogen. Most of it is not excited to cause it to emit or absorb energy. So that's why the hydrogen lines are so weak. Other elements, in some cases, get excited easily at lower temperatures. Calcium, for example. Sodium over here. Mercury can get excited at lower temperatures and then cause, the, cause them to glow and look very prominent. So the strength of a line does not directly tell you how much of that material is there. When we see the line, we know that that is present. So we know that, for example, there is iron in the sun. There is calcium. More iron, more calcium, mercury, uh, helium. Helium was actually discovered in the sun. That's how it got its name. Helium for Helios was actually discovered in the sun before we ever knew of it on the Earth. So that's how it got, how it got, how it got its name when they discovered, discovered that. So the strength of the line does not directly tell you how much of the element is there. You also have to know the temperatures. And those temperatures actually make a difference in terms of how strong the, how strong the different lines will be. But astronomers can take the temperature information that we know about the sun and these lines, how strong they are, and put that all together to be able to tell us what, how much of each of the elements are there. And we find out that the sun is about 90% hydrogen, so 90% the lightest element, about 10% helium. If you just count number of atoms, we're at 100 already, aren't we? Well, the rounding errors are all the rest of this stuff. You know, less than a percent is all the, everything else there. We certainly find lines of every single one of these elements, all of the naturally occurring, the ones in the bold, all of those we, will find, we do find in the sun to some extent or, or other. So there's a little bit of everything in the sun, but primarily it's all hydrogen and helium. We'll see that as we go through other stars. They're all, all, everything is hydrogen and helium, all the galaxies. Everything is really primarily made up of hydrogen and helium in the universe. The sun is just one object we can study and the one star we can really study in great detail. Now, the outer layers, we had the photosphere was the, I'm going to put that up there, photosphere or sphere of light. This is the surface. In quotes again because the sun doesn't have a surface, there's no place you can go and land on the sun. Even if it wasn't, even if you had something that could withstand, you know, 6,000 6, degrees, you couldn't, there's nothing to actually go land, land on. It's what we see as the surface. When you glance up at the sun, that's what you're seeing. You're actually seeing the photosphere. That's the innermost part of the atmosphere, and that's where most of the light that we see comes, comes from. Just outside that is the chromosphere. Sphere of color. That is just outside the photosphere. You normally cannot see it because the photosphere is so bright. This is where all that light is coming from. And even though there's this glow around the sun, a reddish glow, that's how it gets its name as sphere of color. 
We can't see it. Not normally. You've got to block out the photosphere. You've got to block out most of this light in order to be able to see it. Well, a good time to be able to do that without needing any other kind of equipment is during an eclipse. So during an eclipse, the moon passes in front of the sun. And they're almost exactly the same size. So it blocks out that. And now you can begin to see this glow around the edge, just around the edge, that is the photosphere. So in an eclipse that is just right, where this moon is just barely covering the photosphere, just enough, it blocks out all of that light for us. And now we can see the outer, the outer layers. So actually, during an eclipse, you could see something like this. During the, to- the total portion of an eclipse, you would actually not see absolutely nothing. You'd still see this faint glow around the edge of the moon. Now, astronomers don't have to wait for an eclipse to be able to observe this. They can make an artificial eclipse. There's ways within the telescope to block out the light of the surface of the sun. So they don't have to wait for an eclipse to do this, but that's one way that you can actually get to see it. There are other techniques that can be used as well. You also get to see, which we'll talk about a little bit later, some of the active parts of the sun where you see some a uh, little bit of extra brightness over here, maybe some little flares, little prominences, little bits of material uh, coming out from the surface of the sun. Question? Yeah? yeah this is going back to the spectral oh. lines. Go ahead. Of course, sun. Could there be possibly elements within the sun that we, we, have, we had not discovered yet? Because a very high temperature pressure down there? It's not going to be hot enough to create anything we don't already know about. Because there's, there's no room in the periodic table for any other elements until you get to the very edge of it. So until you get to you know, here, you know, element 110, you know, I can't, there's not going to be an element in between nickel and copper. There's not going to be an element between uh, nitrogen and oxygen. Because the way the elements are defined is how many protons they have in their nucleus. So you can have six, you can have seven, you can have eight, but you can't have six and a half. So it's not like there'll be any other unusual element buried within there, you'd need much more intense pressures and temperatures beyond what the sun can do to actually get up to anything higher, to actually create anything higher than that. So you would not be able to get any new elements you know, deep down in the core. It's incredibly hot compared to what we think of. But even the extremely hottest stars can only generate elements up to iron, so element 26. Even the very hottest stars don't get there. Anything beyond iron requires a supernova explosion. So much energy beyond anything the sun could possibly do. So everything else here, you know, all of the copper, zinc, um, iodine, you know, other elements, lead, lead, gold that we have was all created in a supernova explosion. So to get anything beyond there. So yeah, no, no, no nothing, nothing, no new magical elements or anything that's hiding hiding down there that we could get to, even at the high pressures and temperatures that exist, nothing else that we could, that we'd be able to find. Yeah? So you don't think there's other elements? Do I think there's other elements? Beyond it, yeah. But nothing within the sun? No, there's no way you could have, you can't have anything in between those. Unless you have a way to have an element with six and a half protons. So how do you cut a proton in half? Well, it's made up of three quarks. You can't cut it in half. You could pull one and then nah, there's all sorts of quantum mechanics and things that get very tough to, to pull about. But no, there's, I mean, the periodic table is pretty well set now. There's no way to have anything in between any of those. I mean, it counts by ones. You add one proton to hydrogen, you get helium. Add a proton to helium, you get lithium. Another one, you get beryllium. There's, there's no jumps 
as there were you know, hundreds of years ago when we only knew 20 or 30 elements. Now we've sort of finished it up, filled it out. Yeah? So could there be possible somewhere in the universe that I'd say element 93 could be naturally occurring or not? Right. Not that it would be naturally occurring because it, it, we know of element 93 and it's unstable. So it decays. Now could there be, if you're getting not in the sun, but could there be some other elements that go beyond this? Could there be another region? If you see all these ones that are sort of uh, outlined, those are unstable. So they exist, but they only exist for a very short period of time. And I don't know if it gives me half-lives in there, but you know, they can exist sometimes for seconds, minutes, hours, days on the average, and then they decay into something else. Now there are thoughts that there's some other region where it becomes stable again, that if you get up to element 115, 120, that you get another region of stability, then you could have new heavier elements that would exist. But most of the ones that are in there, element 106, 107, 108, those have half-lives, meaning half of, the, half of the material would decay in you know, milliseconds, microseconds. So in other words, in a, se- in a couple of fractions, in a few seconds, it's all gone. So unless you get to another region where there is stability, you're not going to have any new, any new elements. Could there be heavier ones out there? Certainly if you get another, another region where they're, where they're stable, but nothing in what, which we have right now. Alrighty. Now when we look at the chromosphere, you get to see a lot of detail in here. One of the things you're seeing are these spicules kind of standing up, little spikes uh, standing up in the chromosphere. So it's not like a flat surface or anything. The surface of the sun is very rough, very unusually, I mean very irregularly shaped. You've got darker areas that'll show up. You've got brighter, energetic, more energetic areas. When you're looking in the chromosphere, things are pretty much backwards from what they are on the photosphere. In the photosphere, you get sunspots. They're very dark. In the chromosphere, those same sunspots are going to be rather bright. They're actually the areas of more energy in the chromosphere. So even though the sunspots are relatively dark on the surface of the sun, they're very important. That's where all the energy, that's where a lot of the energy is being produced and further up above that area in the photosphere where they're cool, they're actually the brightest area, some of the brighter areas on the sun. The spicules are the darker, the spikes kind of standing up here. So sort of rolling through it. So it's sort of like a, almost like a sea of, sea of grass there on the sun almost I think of it is. Yeah. Yeah, the little, the little sections like coming up up in here, up in here, the little, the little spiky areas that are coming up, all of these little things. So it's sort of a structure, just a little bit of a structure to that outer layer, uh, outer layer, the chromosphere of the sun. Now, beyond that, we go out beyond the chromosphere, there's an outer layer, even that, which is the corona of the sun. Again, in order to see this, you need either special instrumentation to block out the sun, block out the main light from the sun. You've got to block out the photosphere and the chromosphere because this is even fainter. But if you can block out both of these two, you can get the very outer layers of the sun, which is the corona. This is the outermost layer. So the very outermost layer of the atmosphere and just extend, extends out into space. 
again, very prominent during an eclipse. You can actually see, you can see the corona very well. It's not going to be glowingly bright, as bright as the sun, certainly. Otherwise, we'd be able to see it all the time. But once you block out most of the light of the sun, and then the last little bit, you would be able to see this glow around the edge of the moon during a total solar eclipse. How it looks depends on how active the sun is. So this corona would be taken when the sun is relatively quiet. It's a nice and smooth and just fits nicely around the sun. Doesn't look all that irregular. You got a few little bumps and glitches here and maybe around a few places. But overall it's relatively smooth. When you look at that during a period of really intense solar activity, the corona gets much more unusual. You might have big blotches going up on this side and something on this side where there's a lot of activity going on. So the corona gets very easily distorted by the activity and the magnetic fields of the sun. And studying that helps us to understand the activity. I'm sorry? If you saw it right now, you'd probably see, you'd see it would be much more irregular right now because the sun is, even it's at its maximum, even though it's not a very energetic maximum, it's still at its maximum. So you wouldn't see it quite as nice and smooth as you would see it, you know, three or four years from now when it gets down towards minimum. So when the sun is the most active, it gets the most irregular. But yeah, you'd see, you'd see a little bit more activity probably than that right now if you could look at the corona. Um, Temperature-wise, the corona gets incredibly hot. Temperatures are about 1 to 2 million Kelvin. A little bit warm, right? Not hot in terms of you're going to go out there and stick your hand in it and feel hot because there's so few particles that you're not, there's not going to be really much there. But hot in terms of the particles are moving incredibly fast when you get up there. So the temperatures actually increase from the photosphere, which was about 6,000 Kelvin. Chromosphere gets a little bit warmer, about 10,000. Gets a little bit hotter. The corona gets up to several million. And that just to remind you, the temperature is really measuring how fast particles are moving. The faster the particles are moving, the higher the temperatures. So 6,000 is pretty hot. Those particles are moving fast. In the chromosphere, it's almost twice as hot. The particles are moving even faster. In the corona, it's really hot, 1 to 2 million degrees, and the particles are really zipping around. That's to compare to the core. The core has a temperature of the sun of about 15 million degrees. So. Not as hot as the core, not hot enough for nuclear reactions to occur, and there's also not enough particles, not enough density for nuclear reactions to occur in the outer layers of the sun. But the temperatures are there. Those particles are really whipping around, and that corona and the particles there are what eventually many of those in outbursts actually are what you know, come here towards Earth that cause the aurora. Those particles as they stream out towards the Earth will actually cause the aurora. Alrighty. Now here's the temperatures again. I showed you, talked a little bit about this already. Um, the corona is much, much hotter. Here's the temperatures down here. Here's the photosphere. About 6,000 degrees. It cools off a little bit when you get into the chromosphere and then starts to heat up again to about 10,000. And then transitions very quickly as you get further up above and jumps out to very high temperatures, about a million to two million degrees as you get out here into the corona. 
and then that pretty much levels off. That means we need some kind of heat source. You need some way to, how are you heating those up? You, know, you can't take an object that is 6,000 degrees, right, the surface of the sun, and use that to heat things up to a million degrees. Right? Doesn't quite work that way. You can't take a lower temperature and, and suck that heat out and heat things up. There's got to be something else that is causing those particles to gain energy. And it is probably the magnetic field of the sun. As the magnetic field of the sun spins around and whips around, and we're going to look at the magnetic field in a little bit more detail coming up here, it probably grabs these particles, magnetic field grabs them and swings them around and accelerates them to very high speeds. Charged particles, meaning hydrogen nuclei, a proton, has just a positive charge. The temperatures are so high you'd have that proton and you'd have an electron. They wouldn't be able to stay together. You'd rip them, they'd be ripped apart all the time. So you would never be able, you wouldn't be able to have them together at all. So they would get ripped apart and then you'd have charged particles. Charged particles and magnetic field lines kind of fight each other. So when you have a magnetic field sweeping through a bunch of charged particles, it doesn't just pass through them. It actually grabs them and swings them around. So if you accelerate, if you have a very strong magnetic field, you can actually whip up these particles, and the, those magnetic field lines are whipping around, they can actually accelerate these particles to extremely high temperatures. And that's probably what the source of heat is. It's not just heat from the sun at 6,000 degrees that is increasing the temperature out here. It's actually much more than that. It's the magnetic field of the sun actually whipping up those particles to extremely high, extremely high velocities. But that's just giving you an idea here. The temperature initially cools off, what you'd expect, right? You get further away from the sun, even though you're still right at the surface. It's 6,000 degrees there. If you get a little bit further away, it should get a little bit cooler, right? A little bit further, a little bit cooler. It starts doing that, but then all of a sudden, at some point, this other, this other type of magnetic field interaction kicks in, and then it starts getting much hotter. So instead of, being, instead of cooling off and being 1,000 degrees or 500 degrees by the time you get way out here, it's actually whipped those particles up so they're moving even faster and faster and faster as you get up to, as you get up to these higher distances above the sun. Yeah, once you get far enough out, they will start. It will start to it will start to cool and slow down. There'll be the atmosphere eventually will thin out so much the atmosphere of the sun that there won't be anything anything there. Once you get much above wherever the corona wherever the corona ends quote ends, right? There's no end to it because it, it just slowly thins out. You can't say, well, here it is and it stopped. But yeah, it would, it would slowly start, they would slowly start to uh, decay down and cool off as you get further and further away from the sun. Eventually, you get further away from the influence of the magnetic field of the sun. All right, on to the active sun. I've mentioned sunspots a couple times already. Now let's look at them in a little bit more detail. Uh, there's a couple pictures of sunspots here. They do look dark. Um, not because they're dark. They're not little like islands on the surface of the sun where you could actually go land there. They're slightly cooler than the rest of the sun. Sun's about 6,000 degrees. Nice sunspot might be 4,000 degrees. Still don't want to land there. Still a little bit too warm to want to go ahead and send a spaceship there. They're just slightly cooler areas on the surface of the sun. So here the yellow part would be the sun that we'd know. The rest of these here, here, is this sunspot grouping. You'll see they're not just one big nice smooth spot. There's some darker areas to it where it's a very intense 
much cooler temperature and then some lighter areas around that. Um, you might remember the terminology that's used from eclipses. right? The dark area, the very darkest part of it is the umbra. So the umbra of the sunspot is the very darkest dark area of the, of the sunspot. The penumbra is that lighter area around it. So the penumbra, the light gray here would be the penumbra of the sunspots. The dark areas were the umbra. While the terminology is the same from eclipses, it has nothing to do with eclipses. So it's nothing blocking out the sun's light. It is actually attached to the sun itself. Now, they look dark, but if we took that material, so I come up with some kind of mechanism that can actually take a chunk of the sun out of it and stick it out in space, those would actually glow very bright. So if we could take a sunspot out and put it out there in space and look at it, it would glow you know, very bright. You're talking 4,000 degrees, it'll glow a nice orangish red color. So, so it is extremely bright still, it just looks dark because it's not as bright as the rest of the surrounding material. It's not emitting quite as much energy as the rest of it, so it looks relatively dark. But if you could take that out and put that out in space someplace, it would actually glow because it is still that hot. It would still glow red, red-orange. So it would still, you would still be able to see it if you put it out in space. It would not just be a big black spot you know, in space that you would be unable to see. Um, the bottom one is actually showing the sunspot. You see the granulation we mentioned last time showing the convection cells down there and showing the sunspot kind of just plops up in the middle there. We think the sunspots are caused by the magnetic fields of the sun. So what happens, and we'll look at this in a little bit more detail, but the sun sun magnetic field as it twists around gets all tangled up and eventually it gets twisted and tangled enough that it gets all sorts of kinks and bubbles in it and some of those poke out through the sun's surface and where that magnetic field pokes out, it actually cools off the photosphere of the sun. So we think it has something to do with the magnetic field of the, of the sun in terms of forming the sunspots. And we'll look at the cycles that come up here in a minute. Size-wise, we're getting an idea of what kind of size you're talking about there. You know, many of the big sunspots can be the size of the Earth. So they're not just little spots on the sun, they're giant sunspots. You can actually see some of them. The largest ones can be seen with the naked eye. Now, if you know where to look, obviously you're not going to sit there and stare at the sun when it's up there, up, up high. But when you're seeing sunset, sunrise, when the sun is low in the sky, when a lot of the light is blocked out, you can actually see some of the very largest sunspots are actually visible to the naked eye. And there are reports that, you know, like some of the other things, that sunspots were actually observed you know, thousands of years ago. That astron- Chinese astronomers actually saw sunspots, you know, long, long before Galileo saw them with the telescope. But again, when you can only see a glimpse of them with your naked eye, you can't sit there and stare at the sun for very long. Even at sunrise and sunset, it's a little bit better, but you can't really stare at them. It's hard to get any kind of evidence and to be able to confirm what has actually been been seen. Sunspots don't stay on the sun for very long. They last a few days, weeks, maybe a month or so, and then they disappear. So they're not there continuously. You're not going to watch one sunspot like we watched the great red spot on Jupiter. You're not going to watch one red spot, one, one sunspot for years and years. This is sort of showing what, I, what we think they're made up of. And it's the magnetic field lines that get kind of twisted. 
on the Earth, the magnetic field line is that of a big, big magnet. All right, you got a big north-south magnet, essentially in the center of the Earth, and you get, you know, magnetic field lines, and it looks, you've probably seen images something like that before. That's the Earth's magnetic field. Well, the Earth spins as a whole big solid body, so the magnetic field spins with us and stays about the same. If you recall last time, we talked about how the sun rotated. It takes about 25 days for the equator to rotate once. It takes about 36 days for the poles to rotate once. The magnetic field rotating with that is now getting all twisted and tangled up because the equator in you know, three days on the equator only corresponds to two days at the pole, two rotations. So that gets twisted up. So after a couple months, it gets one extra twist in it. After a year, you've got three, four extra twists in this magnetic field. After a couple years, it adds up. It gets worse and worse, and eventually that magnetic field gets so tangled up that it just kind of pops out. Those magnetic field lines have gotten twisted and will pop out through the surface, come out through a, north, through a southern pole here, and then go back down in through a northern pole. And you'll see that, we see that on the surface of the sun. Now how do we know that? We can't see magnetic field lines, right? We can't see the magnetic field line of the Earth. You can take a compass and it will point along the magnetic field lines, but I can't see it directly. You can see it uh, to some extent if you watch the particles on the sun. And this is actually an image of two sunspots. There's a sunspot grouping here and a sunspot grouping here. This is actually a photograph. This isn't an artist's conception, but you can see the magnetic field lines because those particles, particles from the sun, flow along the magnetic field lines. So they highlight them and make, the, and make them stand out for us. Just as if you've ever taken a magnet, and sometimes they do it in science classes, right? The magne a magnet with iron filings, and you put them on a paper above it, and they form the nice magnetic field pattern. It looks just like this. Well, if you have something to highlight that and something to make it stand out, you can actually see the magnetic field lines. So they're invisible unless there's something there that's following along them that actually allows us to see them. So that's what we see. We see sunspots always come in pairs. There's a north, pa north pole and a south pole to a sunspot and linked by the magnetic field lines. So the magnetic field lines then go back down into, into the sun. Here's kind of explaining the rotation of the sun a little bit better. If we started off with a nice smooth magnetic field, recall that this rotate, the equator rotates a lot faster. So after a little while we've rotated and we've pulled the magnetic field lines near the equator are getting pulled ahead. The ones at the poles are getting left behind. And after one rotation, a little bit, two rotations, three, sun rotates about once a month. So 12 rotations in a year. Over two years, 24, three rotations, three years, 36 you're really twisting and tangling up that magnetic field. Eventually it'll get so tangled that there'll be little bits that will pop out of, pop out of it, little bubbles in, in the magnetic field where it's gotten so twisted and uh, tangled inside. Now that's part of what we call the solar cycle, that there is actually a pattern to the sunspots. We've mentioned uh, we're towards the area of highest solar activity right now when there are the most sunspots on the sun. So the sun is really all tangled up right now. Slowly, it'll, the sun will reset. It'll kind of reset itself and detangle itself. Something happens eventually. You get it so tangled up 
right? Twist up a rubber band, it'll start to do all sorts of odd things. Eventually it's going to snap on you, right? Twist it up too much, it's going to snap. Well, eventually the magnetic field of the sun snaps and goes back to a nice simpler version and then the process repeats itself. No, that's usually towards the end. Actually, most of it is when it's the most tang- it's a little, bef- a little before that, even a year or so, a year or two before that, is when it's the most, when you're getting the most of this. Eventually, it might not be just a sudden snap, sort of like the rubber band might not be the best analogy, but eventually it just gets to the point where it, it completely resets and actually flips itself. So it actually completely flips too. But yeah, we will, you will get some solar storms, but usually the sunspots have started to wind down by the time the changes are occurring. Um, Question, yeah? The, um, no, how go. long does it take the equator to um, rotate and then the poles? Equator takes about 25 days, poles are about 36. So about every three days, three days on the equator corresponds to about two days on the pole. So, you know, every three months, you've, the equator's lapped the pole once. So here's looking a little bit about that cycle. It's an 11-year sunspot cycle where we'll see hardly any sunspots for a while. The number will increase. You get a lot for a while, and then it declines, and then again, and again. You know, and you can see the there's a relatively re- regular pattern there doesn't always get quite as high. There's some of these peaks that are lower, right? Here's a low peak here in the 1970-ish. The peak wasn't very high. Here in 1960, it was much higher. One of the highest ones here on, in, this, in this 100 years frame. The last three here were pretty, pretty big. Our current one, not, very, not so much so, actually is going towards one of the lower ranges of these. But the pattern is about every 11 years and is pretty regular in terms of that. Is it precise? Can you get 11 and a half years, 12 years? Yes. Can you get 10 years sometimes between them? Yeah, they vary a little bit. It's not exactly precise, but it's roughly about an 11-year cycle with how many sunspots you see, just the number of sunspots. And that's what this is. This is counting the average number of sunspots seen over the course of a month. How many sunspots did you see? Well, sometime here during minimum, you're seeing only a handful. Here towards maximum, you might be seeing 100, 150. You know, get up to 200 is a very, very active part of the sun. And that will continue. It'll go again. So we're getting towards that we're towards a maximum. We're in a maximum right now. When does that maximum occur? Was it last month? Was it two months ago? Is it three months from now? I can't tell you until we get towards the minimum, when we can actually look back and see when the actual maximum occurred. You know, here in 1970, you might have looked, oh, we peaked and we're dropping down. Well, guess what? The sun decided to be active again a little bit later and jump up even higher than it had been before. So until you're all the way past it and can really safely look back and say, you know, where was the actual peak, you don't, actually, you don't really know. The other thing that you're looking up here on the other diagram is we've looked at one specific year, in this case around 1940, and looked at where the sunspots occurred on the sun. Here's the equator. Very rarely see sunspots directly on the equator. Um, But you do see them further up. And if you notice the pattern, there's actually a pattern that here at the minimum, as the minimum started, you had very few sunspots. But they were also at very high latitudes. High is in about 30 or 40 degrees. You started to see lots of sunspots further up the surface of the sun, further away from the equator. 
as you reach maximum, here they came down. So they're getting closer and closer, so going from 30 degrees to 20 degrees. And eventually, as you reach the end of the cycle and the sunspots start to fade out again, you're getting much, many fewer. Now they're occurring very, very close to the equator. Not on it, but within about 10 degrees or so of the equator. And then there's that jump. So it gets very, very weak here. And then there's a jump. All of a sudden, the sunspots go from forming close to the equator to further away. And the next cycle has begun. Now, it's not just automatically a sudden jump. It can take some time. You might still be seeing some sunspots close to the equator while you're seeing some further, heading further north at the same time. Okay, so that's the 11-year sunspot cycle. But really, it's not an 11-year cycle. It's actually a 22-year cycle. Just to throw everything off, right? Because what happens is the polarity of the sun switches after 11 years. So here's the sun. You have the North Pole and the South Pole, right? Just like you have on the Earth. Well, like the Earth, the Earth has two North Poles, right? It's got a North Pole where it's rotating, and it's got a North Magnetic Pole. North Magnetic Pole's up in northern Canada. So if you look at the Earth, you know, here's the Earth. You know, you'll have a North Pole. I'll say this way, there's the North Pole. But the North Magnetic Pole is a little bit off there. A little bit off of it. Well, the Sun has the same thing. It has a North Pole and a North Magnetic Pole. But after one sunspot cycle, this becomes this in terms of magnetic poles. It flips over. So the South Magnetic North Magnetic Pole becomes the South and the South becomes the North. It flips. The Sun doesn't flip. The North Pole of the Sun is still the North Pole of the Sun. The Sun didn't turn upside down, but something happened inside that flipped the magnetic field. That happens on the Earth as well. Not on that kind of regular basis and not certainly not on that short of a time scale, but there have been times on the past where this has always been the North Pole, but where this up here would be the South Magnetic Pole. Meaning if you had a compass, it would be pointing south instead of north. It flips on much longer scales, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years. But we can see evidence for it in uh, the rocks on the Earth. We can see how the rocks and the minerals line up with the magnetic field. And we can see at certain points they've flipped. So the Earth has actually had this where there's been you know, regular North Pole, nothing else changes, but the magnetic poles have flipped back and forth. The Sun just does it on a regular basis. Every 11 years, the poles flip. So the real cycle is actually 22 years long because after two of these, you're back to where you started. This is 11 years. This is 11 years. So after 22 years, you're back where you started. You've got the North Pole and the South North Magnetic Pole and the South Magnetic Pole in exactly the same position that they were when you started. Now this picture, this diagram goes back a little bit further. Right? We looked last time, we looked here, we looked at the 1900s. You had a very strong, you had some very strong ones, strong minimum maxima, you had some very strong ones, you had some very weak ones. Um, but if you go back, there's been some areas here. Late 1800s, early 1900s, it was weak for a while. Early 1800s, it was really weak. It almost looks like there's one missing there. Looks like it just skipped a, min, skipped a maximum one time. If you go back even further, Okay. Sunspots were discovered by Galileo, right? Early 1600s, 1610 or so. 
So don't have many records at the very beginning. We didn't have a lot of detail. But certainly sunspots were seen. But there then was a time right after that where the sunspots almost leveled off. I mean, look, there was a period here for a decade or so where there were no sunspots, hardly any sunspots on the surface of the sun. That's what's called the Maunder Minimum. And it was a time of very, very little activity on the sun. So while this occurs pretty much regularly every 11 years, it's not like fixed to clockwork. It's not always going to happen. There could come a time again where there is you know, very little solar activity. What well, big, big deal, right? Well, it actually does affect us here on Earth. I mean, certainly that sun's where we get all our energy. The more energetic the sun is, the more energy it's putting out. So it puts a little bit more energy out towards the solar maxima, a little less towards the solar minima. Not a whole lot, but enough that this is actually sort of a time in Europe that was known as the mini ice age. It was actually unusually cold for, now if you look at that there, that goes into the early 1700s from the mid, that's about 50 years worth, when it was, there was no, there was never a maxima. And the sun, the sun was unusually cool and cooled off, uh, cooled off things here on the earth. So let me see, I think, am I, well I'm going to finish up and go through those next time. I've gotten through, I'll, I'll finish up and review the cycles and we'll go through, talk about some of the different objects, that we, different things that we see on Wednesday and should finish up most of the sun, a sun then. Yeah? Could that just be data, like air? No, there, there were enough observations and enough telescopes by then that we would have seen if there were sunspots. I mean, people were to the point of looking for them. Like I was looking There was, still en- there was still enough around, especially as you get into like this section. You know, there, was eno- there were telescopes you know, all over the world now. So you know, maybe certain areas would not have been, but others, others would, have, would have been able to see it. And there are actually observations that say, you know, no sunspots, no sunspots, no sunspots for this. Time. Not just there's just no observations, that there's observations that say, you know, the sun, there's, here's how many sunspots there are, and there's two or three, and it's not a hundred. So, anything else? All right. Have a good good rest of the day and I'll see everyone Wednesday.